All right, let me take you back. Okay, how far back? Oh, yeah, so late 80s, early 90s, all right? The big bogeyman in intelligence was the Soviet Union, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, And the little one, the sort of the not-so, to me anyway, the not-so-big threat was China. Okay. China was like the Jan Brady of intelligence, you know. How so? Russia, Russia, Russia. It's all about Russia, you know. And to be perfectly (laughs) honest, to me, China really just seemed like a bunch of guys that... You would run around in padded suits and wave little red books and they built an embassy that looked like a really bad Asian knockoff of McDonald's, right? But then one thing happened. What? It was a really ugly thing too. It was in the newspapers and all. It was a little thing called Tiananmen Square. Oh, yes. This huge moment, this big upheaval in China where, my God, they're going to get democracy. And then the tanks literally rolled in. There's that incredibly iconic shot of the Mm -hmm. guy standing there in front of the tank and every time the tank tries to go around him, he just moves in front of it. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that was, to me, really symbolic of what was going on. It was basically a guy standing in front of a Russian-made tank going, you're never going to find reverse, go around. Right? But this suddenly changed China. China went from being this insular, insular, sleepy little place, very ideological, you know, was up in arms about a few tiny little islands in the South China Sea that no one really thought very much about, called the Spratleys, who cares, right? And then suddenly, within 20 years, they're this powerhouse. Mm. They're the factory of the world, all right? Mm. Suddenly, everyone's looking to China. And I have no idea how that happened. So I think we need to get an expert in. Let's do it. You're listening to iSpy, the podcast that is the next great superpower. Joe Rogan, we have our eyes on you. Don't cross us. Joe Rogan. Got a while to go. Yeah, I know. Hello and welcome to iSpy. My name's Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan. As we've discussed in previous eps, he was a former agent at ASIO, but more so an actor and more so an idiot. Essentially, yeah, I was using ASIO as a, a sort of like open ended arts grant <laughs> to educate myself as an actor, I think, and a comedian. But of course, while I'm there, I learned a lot of stuff. Yes. And and some sometimes that stuff I mean, we don't know. We have to take your word for whether it's true. So I so <laughs> I thought it might be nice if we had a guest. We love having guests. Uh, guests are great. We love guests. They're always fun. So we did. We got a guest in, and this guest is a security consultant. He's an expert in security. He Amazing. makes he makes well everyone look makes me look like an idiot. But he's somebody who knows a lot about intelligence, but he really knows one place. He knows China. And and I feel like China is something we really need to dig deep into. So mm. this is going to be great. Yeah. Well, why don't you introduce him? Ladies and gentlemen, uh, drum roll, please. (laughs) (laughs) Neil Fergus from Intelligent Risks. Um, So we're calling him Ferg, though. We're calling Ferg. You can call me Ferg. That's great. All right, we'll call you Ferg. (laughs) Ferg, welcome to the show. Great to have you in. Pleasure. Yeah, now it's really fascinating because... China has been this kind of place that we we think we know stuff about, but we don't really know a lot about it. They seem to to seem to kind of bubble under the surface. What is it you do exactly? Let's start with that, yeah. and then we'll tap into how that ties into China and what your what your thoughts are on China. I first started visiting China professionally back in the early two thousands, and in terms of security briefs, security missions, they weren't that complicated. They weren't that testing. But then we got engaged with the approval of the Australian government to assist the Chinese government put together security for the Olympics. Right. And which Olympics was this? 2008. Okay. 
So we started there in about 2003, I think. And when I say we, there's a team and made repeated visits and spent a lot of time there. Mm. Um, And, well, I suppose, I don't know, I've probably spent about two years of my life uh, over various periods working there. In and out. uh, In and out. And and certainly in the immediate build-up to those games in 2008, I was there for several months. I, I, I did some other interesting things. Some people... They don't have to be as old as Methuselah. might remember Olivia Newton-John walking the Great Wall of China to make money for breast cancer. Yeah. Mm. I did that with my team for 32 days, organising security from Xinjiang in the far northwest all the way across the Gobi Desert, across the steppes and the mountains of Inner Mongolia to the Dragon's Head. So what kind of security would you need? Well, it was as much to do with safety as it was security. (laughs) Yeah. And Olivia is was and remains absolutely irrepressible. So she would go anywhere. A lot of these parts of the wall are closed to tourists. Really? Never been open to tourists. Oh. Wow. In China, Chinese, they call it the wild wall. Mm. And they don't allow foreigners into those guilos. But they let Livy in, didn't they? Uh, they let Livy in because we got an agreement through the Vice Minister of National Security to take the team. And, in fact, one of my guys, Normie Nelligan, had to do what we call the advance, which was do the whole 32-day mm. walk in about 16, which meant, <laughs> fit little bugger that he is, that he ran a lot of it. God. Oh, my gosh. But there were parts that were, you know, we were overlooking precipices. Yeah. And uh, mm. So I would imagine that that would not get the go-ahead nowadays. Highly unlikely. I sat in the office of a Ministry of State security official who said, you're bringing foreign media in with exactly. this? Exactly. I said, well, that's how we raise money for breast cancer. They mm. do they do satellite crosses back yeah. to the UK, US, Australia. He said, hmm, if there is one story published criticising the People's yeah. Republic of China, then we're done. you'll be in jail. Oh. <laughs> Me. You'll be in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, I have to be responsible. Now, here's the thing. You you got this in, and this is the great dichotomy, I think, in China, is the fact that they, they've got this incredibly powerful sort of corporatized business sense. They're very outward in their economic growth, and yet they're incredibly insular and still very, very guarded yeah. internally. So how does that, how do you balance that? Uh, the Chinese phrase, guangji. Guangji. N- networks, contacts. Right. We'd been working with them already, preparing, well... They prepared, but we gave them advice on previous Olympic experience Mm. on how to put the security model together for the Beijing Olympics. So we had got to a position where we were very well known and trusted to a certain extent. Mm. But certainly having the relationship to go to a vice minister and say, hey, guess what? Can we get the chops, the the seal of approval to bring, you know, (laughs) well, Barnsley was coming, but, but didn't in the last minute. But we brought a... An absolute bevy of foreign celebrities from Cliff Richard and Joan Rivers and athletes, yeah. Ian, Ian Thorpe and so on, all of which was to promote the the breast cancer um, mm. ideal. And, of course, we raised, uh, well, we, Olivia raised $30 million oh and, and with additional government funding built the, um, the Olivia Newton-John Cancer and Welfare mm. Centre mm. down in Melbourne. So I would imagine through your networking, like you orchestrated this massive event, how is your networking now? Like I, I think things have changed a lot. Like now yeah. we've got no media, we've got no foreign correspondence in, in Beijing. Uh, really good question, and I guess you know the answer. It has changed dramatically. Yeah. 
There has been a toughening, a hardening under Xi Jinping, mm. the current leader, who's changed the constitution, enshrined himself in the best possible way <laughs> for for someone who wants to be a supreme leader in his constitution. Very polite way of putting it. Yeah, the United Front Work Department, which is a, an instrument of the Central Central Committee, exists to promote Chinese ideology and the and the party's interests. Mm. And this is a global organisation. And he has actually added to that to also promote the core leader's virtues, which is him. Right. So you've worked with the Ministry of State Security in China. Have you worked with the PLA as well? Um, Well, next to, not not for them. So So our contract, we were paid by the Ministry of State Security Mm -hmm. under an agreement, I emphasise, approved by the Australian government at the highest level. Mm. But when they were, of course, putting together this operation for the Olympics, it joined in all the elements all the Chinese security of agencies. Course. Ministry of Public Security, Ministry for State Security, People's Liberation Army, PAP, People's Armed Police. Anyway, the, the whole pantheon yeah. were there. But we were reporting directly to the Ministry of State Security in terms of what we had to do. Yeah, well, the Olympics is the milkshake that brings all the boys to the yard, as we know. So here's the thing. We've got the Ministry of State Security. We've got the PLA. I was reading this great story about uh, a Chinese spy that was arrested by the Russians. Yeah. Uh, Minister of State Security, I think, his name was Tong Sheng Yong, mm-hmm. arrested for stealing the plans for a Russian missile. The only thing was, when they investigated it, they realised the Chinese had already bought the missile and had already started producing the missiles anyway. So how does a mistake like that, I mean, admittedly, it's a huge organisation, but how does a mistake like that happen in a country that, purportedly, with the way people see China, has this incredibly, like, all-reaching, all-knowing, mm. omnipotent intelligence organisation. These agencies are enormous. They are resourced in, to such a scale that it's almost beyond the comprehension of people in Western democracies. Mm. And, and we get the question periodically about, you know, how much money is being spent on the CIA or how much money is being spent on, on Asia or whatever. Not not to get into that debate at the moment, but in comparison to what the Chinese agencies have, it's nothing. Yeah. Wow. Nothing at all. We visited buildings that had 20,000 staff in it for one specialist purpose only. Wow. Oh, my God. Um, There is an office behind, well, back of house in every foreign hotel in China, which belongs to the state organs (laughs) for whatever operational purposes they may have. The need for. So that old um, Cold War trope of if you went into a, a hotel in Eastern Europe, you could almost be assured there was a bug in it. Yeah. Could that trope now be applied to China? Well, quite potentially. Yeah. And, and the instruments of China, China's law allow that. Mm-hmm. In fact, mandate that. <laughs> Encourage wow. it. You don't have a choice. Yeah. There are... And look, from the Chinese perspective, they are emboldened by their recent economic... Mm. expansionism. They are emboldened by the fact that they have a very clever workforce that that has, you know, we hear about stuff where they steal technology, sure, but they also invent an enormous amount of technology. And they are, with the resources that they've accrued from this unprecedented economic growth over a number of years now, they have invested heavily in their security agencies. And we think, yes, well, it's just to prop up the communist regime, but it's not. It's also to protect China from adversaries. Mm. And from the perspective, and I've sat with the Chinese intelligence service, and they've said, but 
the West has done this to us for decades. Yes, and I was going to say that we talk about China becoming the next great superpower, but you've got to realise that, I mean, they were a superpower for, you know, centuries. Mm-hmm. And, and it really shifted only for a small brief of time. And we're in that small brief of time. And I feel like, you know, they've been sitting there biding their time, waiting, waiting for their opportunity yeah. to, to come back. When do you suppose, though, that shift, that real shift happened? I know it changed with the change of leader, but... What was the mindset? What I think very much changed, as you said, with the ascent of Xi Jinping. Yes, but like what? I mean, there, there must have been something there for him to want to change it. I'm going to throw something in here because this is something I heard yeah. uh, through the grapevines, as you do, about what happened after Tiananmen Square. Mm. Yeah, because I was wondering about Tiananmen Square because there was the- a, all of a sudden there was a lot of media mm. on China. Huge focus. Yes. Now, what do you do? Yeah. My God, we've got this, we've literally suppressed, violently suppressed demonstration for people going, we want our rights. Yeah. Right? How do we fix this? Well, I think what I heard, this was the rumour, is they didn't bother with going, let's address the people that are disgruntled. Let's go for the kids. So they literally turned around in the education system and went, look, guys, we're really sorry about that, but your parents went a little crazy. Maybe you'd like a flat screen television. Right. And it was literally they've gone, here's a taste of capitalism because if you really – look, if you if really the only thing you're going to get from democracy is flat screen TVs and jeans. So, look, have them. You have that, but stick to the regime, stick to the mm. game plan. And China thinks generationally. We don't. Yeah. We, I mean, we think in 24-hour in news cycles. The China, there's the classic story, I can't remember who it was, when someone turned around to the Chinese foreign minister and said, what do you think of the French Revolution? And his response was, it's too early to tell. Right? <laughs> so there's that idea of they yeah. basically, the mindset they used, they, instead of going, let's fix the people that are disgruntled, it's like, mm. ignore them, let's go for the kids and get them on board. So, Ferg, would you say that around about that time that's when a lot of this kind of shifted or what, what was the ideology behind it? It was Tiananmen Square led to a complete hardening of the controlling Communist Party. Yeah. So there were dissenting voices at the time because to bring the tanks in and, without being too graphic, massacre an enormous yep. amount mm. of young people, mainly university students, was not something that everybody was in total accord with. But once it had happened, the dissenting voices were rooted out. Mm. And a number of them were were imprisoned. And senior Communist Party officials who had protested were were dispensed with. So that was the seismic shift that actually created the platform that allows someone like Xi Jinping and his people to come in. The the other thing, and and to David's point, I've sat there with senior officials in China who, going back 10 years or so, who said, you know, the greatest concern they've got about protecting the Communist Parties... Mm monolithic role is the poverty in some of the far-flung provinces. Mm. So they accelerated economic development programs for those provinces. But that's smart, right? It's incredibly smart. So there's no haves and have-nots. Yeah. There are certainly – there's more billionaires in China than the rest of the world put together now. Oh, yeah. But – the point is they wanted to smooth out the economic success and share that success. Well, and, and that is kind of short, well, it was the basis of communism, you know, yeah. all for one. Like we're just going, we're all in this together and we're all going to rise up to the top. But I guess that kind of got lost a little along the way. Oh, well, it's still the platform. It's no, a I great mean, platform. I but mean, they, before T- Tiananmen Square, it yeah. kind of got lost, I think. Absolutely. Um, and, and there was an enormous inequity that had been yeah. developing. 
Shanghai, the economic uh, motor of the entire country, mm. and you go out to Sichuan province or somewhere and it's like dire poverty. Yeah. And also the drift, the rural drift that was coming into the cities. These were people who couldn't eke it living out of their, their subsistence farms. So they'd get on a bus and they'd go to Beijing, Shanghai or Chengdu or, or Guangzhou and work as manual labourers living in mm. cardboard boxes. Yeah. yeah. So there's been a deliberate shift to try to alleviate that that dire poverty in the in the less advantaged provinces. But of course it's a fabulous platform which has also then allowed undeniably some of the senior figures in the in the Communist Party in the Central Committee to accumulate enormous wealth. Yeah. Well, I mean it's it's like the oligarchs. 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 I can't say that. I like the ugly oligarchs. 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 I can never Ooh. say it properly. It's from, oligarchs. It's from the Greek oligoi. <laughs> I've just learnt. That's why we have. They're the just hoi- ugly. We have the hoi polloi. The <laughs> o- I always say og- ugly oligar- o- oligarchs. 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 Oh, I can't say it. I can't I say nuclear. <laughs> I struggle with nuclear. nuclear. I really. I literally have to go nuclear. Whoever yeah. thought we'd all know how to say epidemiology? I was about oh. to say. Can I just say that I struggle with that every day? <laughs> epidemiology. I'm like, can we not? Can we just change their name anyway? I, I didn't know what it was. Hydroxychloroquine. I can still say it. <laughs> Now, the other thing with China is the foreign influence. I mean, every government yeah. does. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Every nation in some way wants to influence foreign governments because it's to their advantage. But there seems to be this incredibly insidious, um, well, it's purported to be incredibly insidious, move by the Chinese to influence everyone. Yeah. Now, in Australia, there's been, I mean, I can't remember the story or who the man was. He was found, you know, the Chinese national found dead in his apartment in Melbourne or something. So there's all of these Mm. stories, these terrifying stories that are coming out about what's going on in China. Is it really that bad of what they're doing in Australia? Look, I think a lot of people have mistaken the activities of the United Front Work Department Mm -hmm. with Chinese intelligence, which is not to say that they are discreetly separate. So Chinese intelligence does use the United Front programs for its own ends in a, on a, in a number of ways. But the United Front is a, is a very staunchly pro-Chinese Communist Party movement mm-hmm. reporting direct to a senior finger in the, in the Central Committee. And Xi Jinping has personally spoken at length about how valuable this is to promoting the party's values to the diaspora of Chinese. That's the thing. It's Their brilliant. local communities are huge. Now, of course, what we find is first-generation Chinese, understandably proud of the modern achievements of China, Mm -hmm. are often very active in UFWD activities. The next generation, uh, generally speaking, and we're talking broad brushes here, are incredibly sceptical about the (laughs) UFWD because having been exposed to democratic principles, they understand the UFWD is not there about promoting any democratic institutions mm. in China. It is solely about the preservation of the party. Yeah. yeah. But it's intrinsically linked to their sense of identity with the strong, wonderful, rich history of China and its culture. Mm. So you see, it's a tremendous tool for the party to use. You promote the Chinese language, yeah. ma- Mandarin, there's, there's 140 languages, yeah. but anyway, Mandarin, the history, the art, the wonderful, uh, you know, the ceramics, the... Archaeology, everything. Oh, it's huge, and that's that's got an enormous appeal to people of Chinese 
ethnicity and also a lot of Western people. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Is China a place that Australians would want to go visit now? I feel like there's, Mm. you know, there's the great, there's the warnings and even Hong Kong, like they're saying, don't go to Hong Kong. I had a friend who got offered a job there and, you know, there's a lot of conversation about whether he'd take it or not. Mm. I'll go back to China in a heartbeat. It's an incredible country. They're incredible people. But, of course, I am not a devotee of the Communist Party and its principles. So there's a fear that something could happen to you. You could be arrested. Well, they have been arresting a number of people unilaterally, Mm. uh, including a number of people who have had prior intelligence backgrounds. I was going to say, wouldn't you, with your security and all that, kind of fall under a watchful eye? I get monitored every time I go there. Yeah, for sure. Very closely. And what do they do when they monitor you? You know that they're there. I, I do. Oh, you I've can't been, talk about I've, it? Or? <laughs> uh, I've been summoned down to the front desk at my hotel at 1.30 one morning to really? bring my passport because I'd offended somebody. Oh, my gosh. Somewhere in the... In really? The, yeah. Oh, I don't think I'm going to be going to China anytime. <laughs> Actually, I'd probably get there and go, oh, God, and, it's that idiot. And what did you have to do? Well, I was in my gym jams yep. as young and I stood there like an errant schoolboy for about an hour. <laughs> the, the lovely people at the reception desk were... So embarrassed. Oh, right. Mm. But it was somebody in the room back of house. Back house, yeah. And they said, well, ah. we've just taken your passport. I said, how, how long am I here for? Well, we've taken your passport back there. You know, it's got nothing to do with us. So I waited an hour and a half or something and I just said, look, tell the people back there I've gone to bed. Yeah. And mm. I'll get my passport back in the morning. Mm. Um, and if they want me to leave the country, then, um, you know, they can tell me tomorrow and I'll give a press conference when I get to Hong Kong. Right. Uh, and that was it. Now, you wouldn't do that in Hong Kong anymore. You'd no. have to do that when you get to Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and reference our fabulous ABC journalist ah. and Finn Review journalist. They don't care about the press conferences. That, no. Uh, so we, we are seeing kind of a closing, if you will, of China in, in some respect, like yeah. where they've, they've kicked all of the foreign press out there. We don't have one Australian journalist no, left we in don't. mainland mm-hmm. China. At all. And, and that, in some regards, is kind of frightening, would you not think? Yeah, it's sad. And, and so now moving forward, it feels like China's kind of regressing on, on the foreign stage, would you not? In terms of like they're, go- they're mm. going back to their old school beliefs, they're really closing down. Is that because they don't want to open themselves up to criticism or? I think it's, uh, it may be a misjudgment. Yeah. What they had done, and, and David made the point before, that they put our planning to shame. Mm. Mm. The, the long-term strategies of the Communist Party are unbelievable. Amazing. And they talk about it at a central committee meeting having a five-year economic plan, that's just a plan within the subset of the larger strategy. Yeah. Wow. That's the tweaking around the edges. So they have brilliantly promoted themselves over about 20 years, but in the last couple of years, there may be a a, a slight mistake that they have overreached too soon. Mm. If they had continued with their foreign policy and military settings as they were for another 10 years, Mm. it would have been irreversible. Mm. But by all of a sudden saying, well, we're going to be a little bit more strident, we're going to be a little bit more bellicose, at this point in time, mm. what it's done is, and, and what they've done in terms of trade with Australia, yeah. well, there's, there's a singular warning for Australia yeah, and a wider warning for the world. Whoa, this is not the act of a friendly nation. No. We have a political system that encourages us to voice a dissenting view. We don't need to get on with our friends all the time. 
Nobody can tell me that ScoMo's got on entirely with what the Orange Cheezel's been doing in Washington. No. <laughs> it's just not possible. Yeah. But we voice those disagreements and we move on. China has said we don't want to brook this commentary anymore. Yeah. We want the South China Sea and we didn't appreciate you taking it to the International Court of Arbitration in C yeah. and getting a judgment against us. And by the way, we sure as heck don't like you suggesting there should be an independent review of the origins of the Wuhan virus, the coronavirus. The coronavirus. Yeah. But how much could China could it be said that China has been emboldened by the fact that the Cheeto in chief has been sitting in the Oval Office? Ah. Right. How much of that is how much is that have they been emboldened by Basically an incompetent US president. Because surely there's like, they've been able to get away with a bit more because every all the focus has been on Trump. So yeah. then then they're like, okay, well, we, we can just go about our business over here. He's been an agent of discord for international foreign relations. Yes, 100%. Mm. Um, nobody has really known with any certainty what the next move is going to be or not be. A lot of people go, no, 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 you're, you're wrong, Ferg, because look, there's been the trade spat between the US and China. Well, slow down. China has not fared that badly. Oh, they've fared Not as badly as Potters, as Mm. Trump has tried to make out in his uh, Twitters and press conferences. Well, the US have been subsidising their soybean um, farmers because China went, okay, no need to soybean. We're not going to pay the tariff. And the the rapprochement between China and US on a number of the trade matters has actually disadvantaged us. So our meat that's not being exported Mm. into China now is being replaced by US beef. Same with our barley. Bali. Yeah. So in terms of foreign trade and foreign trade agreements, is this a sign for Australia to now go, hang on a second, maybe we need to start looking elsewhere or relying on more internally instead of exporting, maybe just, you know, start selling the stuff here. I feel like that this is a shift, mm. although we did just sign, you know, that massive foreign trade agreement with Southeast Asia, I think it was. Like, mm. I can't remember the full name of it. Yep. Is this and a sign? China. And China. And that it did include China, which I also found really fascinating as yeah. well. India withdrew and didn't sign it because they thought it was going to be weighted too heavily in favour of China. Right. Well, I mean, China, Yeah. Remains to be seen how advantageous or not that becomes yes. for us. But to your, to your original question, we need to make sure we diversify. We operate in... We're not perfect. We're absolutely not paragons of virtue. Mm. In terms what? Of, yeah, I, know. Right. I know. I know. Well, sorry. I mean, we're selling gas <laughs> for cheaper than we're paying for it in, at home. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah we're, <laughs> we're not exactly bright. We're not sometimes. great. <laughs> but we do believe in a rules-based trade order. Yep. We did support the accession of China into the World Trade Organization whenever it was, I don't yeah. know, 15 yeah. years ago. And they gave commitments to the WTO, which, frankly, they're not adhering to. No. And nobody's going to, to bring them to account. Of course not. That. We have the number of uh, spurious complaints about the quality, so-called quality of, or integrity of a number of our yep. exports. We will appeal that through the WTO system, but you know what? Oh, a couple of years? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Two, and even then, if, if anything comes of it, China will go, I'm sorry, what? We're, well, you said what? We're sourcing it. Yeah, we're sourcing we're... Our wine, your wines from Chile. Yeah. Or California. Yeah. Oh, not California. Um, Come on. So... That's so much better. <laughs> Trust me. So, in terms of China and their ascension again to the, the global set stage, who is going to be holding them to account? I mean, I guess. 
we've always relied on the US to mm. hold everyone to account. You know <laughs> like, what? I'll do it. <laughs> I'll hold China to account. You listen to me, Jan. But I, I feel like, you know, this, this we're on the precipice of a big change in foreign policy and mm. the way countries interact. Are we not? Yes. And and, yeah. and going and going back to your point of they've gone early with their sort of bellicose attitude, is that going to does that disrupt the global order? To a point where it tips, like it tips into chaos, yeah. or is there a way that China can literally step back from the brink, stabilise themselves, and then move forward as the ascendant superpower? They certainly have projections that see them as being the. Uh, they believe the United States is in terminal decline. I do too. Which it is. Um, well, I oh mean, dear. okay, <laughs> no hesitation house. on the part of either of you. <laughs> no, I, I well. Do, do you not agree? In some regards, uh, I do. It's, it's on the edge. It's on the edge. Yeah. I agree that it's on the yeah. edge. I don't think it's fully gone over, but I do feel... And this has nothing to do with Trump. I think, you know, Clinton did irreparable damage with his foreign policy and changes to foreign policy. He brought essentially brought on a lot of the issues they saw with the rise of, you know, um, ISIS. Mm. Reagan also made a lot of economic mistakes. Uh, Reagan made heaps of... Bush... You know, well, Bush was Bush. Bush. <laughs> and Obama. Good old boy. Yeah, good old boy. <laughs> Obama, cool. Well, no, but Obama made, made some mistakes, mistakes as oh, well. Yeah, like definitely. he he withdrew troops early from Afghanistan, I think in um, 06, and that, you know, that caused a lot of issues and there. signed the Joint Comprehensive Treaty with Iran, which was not on his own, no. with all of Europe, which was fundamentally flawed. Yes. So I think, you know, there's been successive mistakes made by leaders of the US in terms of foreign policy and how they approach other countries that I think are seeing them kind of on that precipice. But mm. here's an idea, and this has just popped into my head, so it's a brand new one. All in China. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's, hang well, on hang a, on, hang it's on. It's a new idea for Dave. <laughs> this is frightening. All right. You know, successive US presidents have made errors. But successive US presidents have been held to account by yes. the media, by pub, by popular opinion. That didn't happen in China, no. did it? No. Right. There is no one to turn around to say, oh, I actually think Xi Jinping's doing the wrong thing here. You don't do that. No, he's because solidified that's a great his power tremendously over the last three years. Yeah. So he'll just die out, basically. Well, I, I, I've met him. He's in pretty, pretty good health. He yeah. Lo- he looks a little portly, but... Um, no, but I mean, like, he'll just uh, be there... Forever. Change the constitution. Yeah. He can stay in office forever. Crazy. He's put his people around him. He's uh, he's there. Silenced his critics. Um, <laughs> he sorted out Hong Kong 20 years ahead of what they thought they would do. Macau was done a long time ago. Yeah. South China Sea, honestly. And David, right at the outset, mentioned about the Spratly Islands. Uh, wow, that's always been bubbling away. But mm. he's actually gone, nah, we're doing it. You know, it's the same president who told Barack Obama in the Rose Garden four years ago, I give you my word, we won't militarise the (laughs) islands in the South China Sea. Wow, that worked well. I'll still respect you in the morning. Um, um, Seriously. That slice of the globe, that is about half the size of Australia. Wow. It, It goes within, not quite spitting distance, but... Right down close to Sabah, Sarawak, Malaysia, mm-hmm. Indonesia. Mm. It is enormous. And they've just issued a warning this week saying shipping should stay out because we're doing military exercises. So much for we're not militarising exactly. it. Naval military exercises. So be careful. We don't want an accident. Now, of course, what that means for us and for other countries mm. in the East Asian area, 
that's a Im- massive impediment on yep. trade and right. shipping. You have to go around that. That's going to cost you a lot more. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Time and money. Right. Yeah. So trade. But also I was thinking from the perspective that they're spending all this time militarising. To what end? Uh, well, they are spending so much. They're spending about 10% of GDP, which mm. in China is a lot is of a money, ma- yeah. on defence. There are over 20 warships under construction in military shipyards near Shanghai as we speak. So they intend to project military strength to mm. to back economic growth and political aspiration. Yep. Um, they're, they're basically going to back up what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the US still has the largest military on the planet. And again, from the China perspective, they say, well, why should we be bullied by the US? Mm, exactly. Mm. And the language that the Orange Cheezel and others use about we're going to contain China. Yeah. That's offensive. 100%. It also, should, should be we're difficult. going to balance the China growth mm. phenomenon. We're going to balance mm. it. But, you know, contain, that is just so offensive to not just the Chinese political leadership but to the Chinese people. To the people, people. Yeah. Uh, yes. And But from the perspective of Australia, we are in an awful position, some would say, because we don't have a lot of military, although we're spending more money on submarines but not enough. Mm. We get them in 2070, I think. <laughs> we'll, yeah, yeah. We'll and, the, and the budget's going Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. But because, you know, we, we basically disassembled our, our whole military. So we're, we're just a little island sitting here that are resource rich. Should we be worried? No, but I, I think we need to. Uh, you know, bizarrely, just earlier this year there was a reduction in the budget for our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> At a time in history with so much uncertainty about key allies, mm. yeah. Washington, growth in the region by, by countries who are being quite bellicose, quite forward-looking, we're cutting down diplomacy. Yeah. We need to invest in it. We need to ensure up the mm. current relationships which are good, Try to turn the relationships which are poor into reasonable ones and also work just as hard on the ones that are the most challenging, yeah. which is chi- including China. Mm-hmm. And it's it's difficult because from an, a regular Australian's perspective, they're like, well, fuck them, basically. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like that is completely not what we should be doing. No. We should be working extra hard. But do you see that in our politicians, this kind of laissez-faire attitude of like not – working to sow those relationships hard enough. I know the opposition's spoken about it, but do you see that in our current climate? I've seen some really clumsy talk by senior politicians on our foreign relations. They don't seem to understand. Look, politicians do it all over the world. They'll talk to a domestic audience and think, what the hell with the international audience? But the fact is, it's a digital world. You can't do that. No. What, you know... China has the Global Times. It's a very smart English language production, digital and, and hard copy. Yep. In fact, at one time it was being put out once a week as a supplement in the um, in the Fairfax Press. Mm. Now, oh, really? some people say it's just propaganda. Well, yeah, maybe, but so is Voice of America. Yep. So has been um, Radio Australia in days of past. The fact is, it's putting out the government's position, and it, and when you when you're smart and RT in Russia. Mm. Is an yeah. extraordinarily polished um, broadcaster agency pumping out Colonel Vlad's line of thinking. Of course, we need to we need to start thinking about how we engage better with our neighbours. Yeah, not just New Zealand, 
but certainly up, up in Southeast Asia and East Asia. The Prime Minister's visit to Japan this week is really important because we've got a new Prime Minister up mm. there. And Shinzo Abe really was a mountain of a person, not just in Japan, but internationally. Yeah. Uh, been there, what was it, 12 years. Forged fantastic relationships with other international leaders. Well, we've got a new kid on the block. Not a kid, he's, he's as old as Methuselah. But anyway, there's <laughs> yeah. a new Prime Minister on the block and it's brilliant that Morrison has gone up there and shaken hands, looked him yeah. in the eye and had Touched a chat. elbows. Touched elbows. Shared masks. <laughs> so, well, look, I think we've covered pretty much all the Chinese bases. Yeah. And it's just, it's just been really fascinating because... You know, you can read a lot on China and our relationship with China, but to really have someone or access to someone who who has worked so closely with the Chinese and over there, just to hear the way you talk about them and the people, you know, it's quite refreshing because I do feel like as Australians and other cultures, other Western cultures, just have this kind of fear of... Um, Demonising China. Yeah, they de- demonise them. healthy and it's and, not fair. And I, I don't agree with it. I think it's quite unhealthy as well and it will be to the detriment of you know our trade agreements our you know Most certainly you know our relationships moving forward so what would be your last word if you could give any advice to the australian government or any other governments we need to keep engaging yeah xi jinping's concepts and principles will change nothing yeah. stays the same mm. china has evolved tremendously from Mao Zedong to chow in lai to deng xiaoping to where we are yeah, and it's a massive nation it's incredibly hard for the Chinese Communist Party to keep the grip on it that it's trying to do. Really? Incredibly difficult. But the point is we don't want them to slip it back into some form of quasi-isolation. That's mm. not no. healthy for anybody. There was that lovely story of the PLA soldier when they finally took, when Mao Zedong finally took the Forbidden City and above the gates of the Forbidden City is a small clay plaque which with the characters of that ruling dynasty and above that plaque is a small wooden hatch and he realized that if i go up this flight of stairs i can open that wooden hatch i can grab that pla- that clay tablet smash it on the ground and then hang the communist flag out the window and we have conquered mm. the forbidden city he goes into this room he keeps bumping into piles of something when he opens the door he lifts up the the clay tablet to smash it looks behind him and he sees stacks of clay tablets Right. And he takes the clay tablet and realises, hang on, there are all the other dynasties. And he put it on top of the nearest pile and mm. then hung the flag. Yeah. And the, the question, I mean, is there going to be a point in Chinese history where that flag is folded up and put on top of those clay tablets while another flag or another tablet or another symbol is hung out that door to represent the new China? Inevitably. Yeah. Rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Inevitably, something's got to fall. It all ebbs and flows, though, right? Doesn't yeah. it? And I think I think we're seeing that. We saw that with the British. You know, it's it's all the sun never set on the British Empire, and that was right up until World War Two. There was mm. like there was always a piece of the world that was you know under British rule, gone. Right? It's not and now England. God, what a basket case that place is. We could speak for hours on that, but nobody <laughs> wants to because it's England. <laughs> I think that's a good way, a good place to end it. Thank you so much, Ferg. Pleasure. Yeah. Great to have you. I in. mean, I would, I could talk for hours and hours and hours, but no one wants to stick around and hear it. I could, <laughs> and people pay. <laughs> Who pays? No one pays. Occasionally, they do. No one's paying you. Okay, shut up. You okay. told me this was all pro bono. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the time I've got to go? <laughs> 
Okay, well, it was so good to have a guest. I love having a guest. It's great. I want more. Oh, oh actually, I've lined one up, but I'm not going to tell you who okay. it is. Well, I like it because I get to talk to someone who isn't an idiot. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just really nice for me. It's going to feel good for you. Yes. So next week, we're actually going to, it's going to be a little bit of a lighter episode. We've, we've yeah. delved deep into China. I feel like now we're going to tackle the ASIO Ad campaign. Oh, yeah, the ASIO ad campaign and the joys of social media. Social media. I mean, there's a lot of things that people probably don't think about when they put something on Instagram or LinkedIn. Nope, they don't. So we're going to look into that. And it actually got a CIA guy in trouble. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Try saying CIA guy three times fast. Go. CIA guy. Just stop. I was joking. Just stop. Just stop. (laughs) 